I think it's also interesting to see how like certain technologies at one point in time can like seem kind of useless because I think we all kind of thought oh, like yeah. QR codes yeah. turned out to be kind of like silly and no one wants to use them. It's like a where are all they of a now? Sudden, yeah, like yeah, <laughs> and like they made a huge comeback. Like huge now comeback. it's like QR codes are yeah, everywhere. Like the Nicholas Cage of of technology. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined today by two wonderful co-hosts, Matt and Siora. Matt, Siora, say hello and let people know real quick who you are. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Siora, and I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL, and I'm super excited to be here to chat about some tech stuff with you all. And I'm Matt. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. And very much like Siora, I'm also very <laughs> excited to be here and talking about tech. <laughs> so let's get into it. So I think the first thing we want to touch on this week is a link I shared. I'd love for you two to walk me through this, but um, it was from the GitHub blog. A few folks I know in the software development space use GitHub, just a few. And what they were talking <laughs> about was um, creating sort of a more visual version of your markdown files with something called mermaid a javascript based sort of diagramming tool and you know being sort of a lay person's programmer what was cool about this to me is that it took you know a couple of code snippets that were just characters and turned it into a flow diagram and so if i was coming to you know a code base that was 10 years old and trying to figure out what's going on this i think would be sort of way more intuitive and easy to follow but matt siora Give me sort of your take on um, this interesting sort of product. The kind of abstractness of code, mm-hmm. um, because yeah. some for a lot of people, myself included, that can be, make everything a lot more difficult to understand. Or whether, like you said, you're jumping into a new code base and you're trying to figure out an open source project and like what's going on and how you can contribute. Sometimes if you have like some sort of visual layout of what's happening, it can like shorten onboarding time so that you can start contributing much sooner Mm. especially even if you think about someone who's joining a new company and you're trying to dive into the code base and figure out what's going on um even if you're learning i felt like that was a really difficult thing for me was sometimes i just couldn't visualize what was actually happening um Mm. like i know a lot of you mostly like I don't know if you know this, Matt, but I kind of got my start in tech with cloud in- engineering with AWS. Oh, wow. And, you know, there's like a lot of, yeah, servers and this virtual thing and this private cloud and all that kind of stuff. And my biggest struggle was that I could never visualize where everything was. And still, I start until I started using this um, software that was basically like you could build diagrams of your actual like infrastructure. So it helped you to actually oh. kind of see what was going on. So I think that this That's kind cool. of thing could be really, really helpful for a lot of people in a lot of a lot of different right. ways. What was the tool that you used, Sierra? What was that? I think it was called Lucid Charts. I'm not 100% sure now. Yeah, I think so. I think that's what the name is. It, the name might have changed since then, but that's what I would use. I would like do all my assignments in Lucid Charts first before I actually like put put it like actually right. did it in AWS. Yeah. yeah, code is the opposite of like being a visual learner, yeah. I think. I mean, maybe there's people who can, but... Do you remember that scene in the matrix? Like some people can look at the numbers that are running by in the matrix and they see, you know, oh, oh there's a woman over here. Oh, there's a <laughs> building, but they're just looking at ones and zeros. You know, it's like that. It's like if you're a visual learner, what are you supposed to do with, you know, huge chunks of text? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times I'll just like draw it out myself first 
mm-hmm. like I, to I help. I do the same thing. Yeah. Like yeah. whenever I join a new team and I've got a new project or whatever it is, and I'm trying to like figure out how the infrastructure and everything fits together, I have a giant A3 paper. I get out all my colored pencils <laughs> and like MVP crayons. Yeah. And then I draw out everything to make sure I, I understand the flow and how everything contextually fits together because that's super mm. useful. Yeah. And so you're sort of drawing out the logic kind of? Uh, not so or kind of like the logic so if you're like especially if you're working with like older enterprise systems which plug into 20 different things and have backends and mm. all sorts of different places and it's it's really hard like modern apps are a lot more streamlined I, or can be a lot more streamlined whereas like a lot of the enterprise stuff if, especially if you're dealing with microservices or you're interacting with different parts of your company's technology stack it's really useful to kind of visualize the landscape of kind of how everything works in. So my last role, I was working for a a media company that dealt with like a huge amount of content articles, videos. We were pulling in from a lot of different CMS systems. And that was a nightmare to try and hold in your brain. So I would constantly, I had a thing pinned up against the wall so whenever people were talking about, and they named things like ridiculous, I can't say any of the names, <laughs> but they would name things like pineapple, right? Like there was a, there was logic behind it, but you'd be talking about like pineapple and sausage and nebula, and it's just oh man, it was so complicated. If you're going to be calling data from data from pineapple, you got to make sure you know the uptime on sausage is, and then you're like, I have no idea what's <laughs> happening here. Yeah. yeah yeah if anyone was listening into that conversation they'd think i'd i was going <laughs> see the the thing i think is really cool about mermaid is i would imagine because it's a um a markdown thingy processor or something i don't know what you would specifically call it but i think it's cool because imagine if like you're opening up uh like either you're onboarding on a, on a new team or you're trying to contribute to a, an open source project. And the first thing you usually see is the readme, which is usually a markdown file. And instead of like seeing like a bunch of words that are trying to explain, like, here's how you get started. Here's what's here. Here's what this does. If you saw like a diagram explaining what everything was and where everything fit in, I think that could be right. hugely beneficial for a lot of people. And I'm not saying get rid of the typical like read me jargon but like having a uh, a diagram alongside that could help a lot of people um mm. getting started with like new projects contributing to projects or joining new teams and stuff like that yeah it it forces you to be succinct for sure because yeah. you don't have the space and and, and i feel when you're looking at a, a read me as well and you just want quick information you're like oh i can't remember do i deploy this way or that way or how does that thing work looking at a diagram takes two seconds because you've just got like two words to work with awesome well yeah uh mermaid it seems like uh has a a rich community of contributors so maybe folks can contribute if they're interested um they shout out the maintainer here but i'm not going to try to say his name we'll put it in the show notes and there is both a website and a book you can check out if you want to learn more about mermaid so very cool project yeah sounds like it all right, well, Sior and I both live in the United States of America, so we're obligated to talk about the Super yeah. Bowl. But Sior, you had a nice tech angle on this. What was this Yeah, article the article shared? I shared was actually about Coinbase, who um, had a commercial at the, the Super Bowl. Um, I <laughs> This is going to sound very shameful as an American. I did not watch the Super Bowl, but I was on Twitter after, and everyone was kind of talking about this commercial. And like, apparently, there was like a QR code that people could scan um, that would take them to Coinbase. And Coinbase got so much traffic that their app crashed. 
and everyone was talking about it on Twitter. Right. It's like a combination of a lot of, I guess we could say, relevant things happening at one time. You got the Super Bowl, you've got Super <laughs> Bowl commercials that people are always super hyped to see, and then you have Coinbase, which is a crypto company. So it was some very right. interesting conversations going on, and I got the the link I shared was from uh, the Verge, which had a very just basic informative perspective. So if you want like a neutral <laughs> opinion or a neutral <laughs> like retelling of what happened, that's like a good place to go. Yeah. I mean, this is the whole crypto world in a nutshell. They share something that uh, purports to give people free money. And then when you actually try to use it, it breaks. <laughs> so that, that's pretty much been my experience with crypto over the last six months. Yeah. I was going to say, I thought it was interesting that like we live in a world now where we're seeing like commercials for tech stuff where before like tech stayed in tech and for the most part right like now also you'll see like if you watch a football game sometimes you'll see aws commercials and like now along with like the dorito commercials and the mcdonald's commercials or whatever you also get Hmm. coinbase a crypto company like a tech company commercial as well so that's pretty like interesting to see right um stuff like that become more mainstream i think i was um I forget who I told this. I don't know if this was on the podcast or not, but I was telling someone I had to like explain to my family what AWS was because like AWS sponsors NFL or whatever. And like they have AWS signs right. everywhere. So I had to be like, this is what AWS is. This is what it does. This is why you're seeing right. commercials for it. We're not going to discuss it on this episode, <laughs> but I will say something I thought about sticking in developer news this week was AWS changing their base salary from 160000 to 350000 which is quite... yeah. A large change, I would say, to more than double your base salary. So uh, tip of the hat to them for being able to pay their people well. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I have to say on that. Another episode, we'll get into that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Matt, are QR codes popular where you're at? I think one thing I've loved uh, in sort of like the world of technology, obviously, I I didn't love the pandemic, but um, the comeback of QR codes, unlike menus and, and in restaurants and like really shining like the qr code was had its time to shine it was like this is what we're here to do and they did it well yeah so as as a (laughs) non-american the super bowl i've always had kind of like a romantic fascination about it because you grow up and you see things on like the simpsons and like (laughs) the the parades and the the super bowl show and it's always interesting to watch and from my limited limited exposure as somebody who doesn't watch sports the only thing i saw on twitter was people saying that that was the most expensive qr code in human history and then i started and i saw it was the super bowl and it looks great i actually have no idea how qr codes work do you Mm. do you under i know that you pull data from that but in terms of the actual structure and how that translates into opening something on your phone do you two know i don't that's actually really a good question that i never thought about I just know that if I pull out my little camera and point it to the QR code, it takes me to right. where I need to go. And that's all I know. Yeah, I'm just going to make <laughs> this up and then it'll be wrong. And then we'll come, we'll bring a QR code expert. But, you know, it's kind of like a UPC code. You know, when you go to, to the checkout aisle and they scan it and it's just a bunch of lines. But to them, it means this is this item and it costs this much. And like you can change on the back end, you can change it. If there's a sale, you change it. And when they scan the UPC, the product costs something different, right? Because like mm. it's, call, it's making a call to a system in the back. A QR code is kind of like that, you know, like a web browser can read it and it'll make a, a call to some server somewhere and then they'll they'll feed you information. So like, look at the QR code. It actually translates to this URL, go to a website, enter to win $3 million in crypto, <laughs> except the website is down. 
Yeah, I I know when I when yeah. QR codes first like became a thing a few years ago, I kind of thought it was going to evolve to the point where everyone would have their own like personal QR code where like you know, mm. you go to a party and instead of like having like here's my card, here's my business card with my phone number on it, like you have a QR code that's going to like have your information or whatever. That was probably very naive mm. thinking at the time because I don't know how secure it is to like have your information like here's my phone number on a QR code that you can just scan like at a party. <laughs> but that's what I thought was going to happen. But I do think it's been interesting to see how like technology, certain things have evolved along with the pandemic because I don't think anyone would have ever thought that you would like go to a restaurant or a like a place for takeout and like instead of getting an actual menu, you just scan a code and like it yeah. takes you to their website right. and you look at it through that. The funny thing is like the US, living in the US, we're so far behind the times. Like when I worked for DJ and I traveled to China it was laughable that somebody would like bring you a paper menu. Like everybody had an app, they would scan a QR code. The app would like coordinate with the waiter and everybody at the table like could pay, you know, at the end, all, it was just like so far ahead of us. Um, but yeah, I think it, it's funny that it takes like a big moment of dislocation. And then all of a sudden we're like, yeah, why weren't we always doing this with our phones? Obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It kind of, um, I think it's also interesting to see how like certain technologies at one point in time can like seem kind of useless because I think we all kind of thought oh, like yeah. QR codes yeah. turned out to be kind of like silly and no one wants to use them. It was like a where and are all they of a now? Sudden, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> and like they made a huge comeback. Like huge now comeback. it's like QR codes are yeah, everywhere. Like the Nicholas Cage of, of technologies. <laughs> <laughs> COVID for sure was one of the best things to happen to QR codes. <laughs> That's <laughs> Yeah. Who would have um, thought? It's at that I, I never, you know, the last time I used a QR code, I couldn't remember the last time I used a QR code. And now I'm using them several times a day when I'm going out and getting a coffee. I used one 10 minutes ago when I went to get my coffee to sign in uh, to the coffee shop. Right. So, you know, it's yeah. it's, it's interesting how some to technologies, they may be useful, but the, the, the mass use case for them hasn't been, um, it hasn't arrived yet. Right. And I think that was kind of like the case with QR codes. It was just biding its time waiting for, the opportunity for it to yeah. have this kind of mess appear. One other great use of QR codes. Uh, I just want to shout. I just want to shout out one other great use of QR codes um, <laughs> is when you get like a new device, like you yeah. get a Nest thermostat or whatever, and you can just scan it, and then it like goes right into the setup process, and it like knows the device ID. Yes. I love that use of. Oh yeah, that's really cool. I I wanted to go back really quick to with what happened with Coinbase as well with their website crashing. I didn't really look into how they recovered from that. I always think that's mm. really interesting, like as obviously as someone who got started with AWS and cloud things and servers. <laughs> yeah. I'm always like, you know, one of the big appeals of AWS is that like it handles your, it like scales with your application and the traffic of right. your application. So whenever things crash, I kind of like wonder what was what was going on? Like, what what happened with that? Who's who's yeah. controlling your? Let's interview the uh, SRE <laughs> who who let that happen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's like there's like some poor intern yeah, who exactly. picked the on call shift for the Super Bowl. <laughs> He's like, oh no, I know. I'm happened. like, how do you recover from that though? Like, honestly, it probably like if your if your website crashes because so many people are using it, that's kind of like cool ish right yeah. like that means mm. that you're pretty popular and in demand but also like at the same time like how much business do you lose from people like going to your mm. website and it's not yeah. working not a great first experience with coinbase for yeah. the average consumer i think they'll recover but yeah so matt you shared a link um here it's about intel um they're buying an israeli chip making company um to focus on you know sort of letting them use their foundry capacity and inside of here a couple of interesting things about how intel is focused on making like a whole bunch of different chips 
radio frequency, CMOS sensors, power management parts, and also their plans to invest $20 billion to build a new chip making plant in Ohio, which is a complete departure from the last 20, 30 years when all the chip making stuff was being offshored out of the United States. So tell me why you shared this article, what you think is interesting here. Yeah, I think, especially with Apple making some moves at the moment where mm. they've brought their their semiconductor processes in-house, where they now have complete control over their own chips and then no longer having to rely on third parties like Intel to produce for them. And that has a number of benefits. And we've seen that with the, the M1 and M1 Max processors now where the performance gains are very real in terms of video editing. They can put encoders in there uh, like H.265. Are you a user or are you, are you referring for. to like the benchmarks? I, as an actual, you, oh, sorry. What do you like mean? you use it and you have experienced it and you think it's great. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's the, the performance gains are real. They, especially with, when it comes to the encoding side of things with, with video, it's miles, miles better mm. than what it was on the old Intel based platforms. And so I'm, I'm really interested in seeing news like this, potentially maybe not so much from Intel as they're, they're not kind of tied to their own, they, they sell their chips to, to other manufacturers, right. but seeing kind of what, what these big players are going to be doing and, and how that's going to translate to gains for us as consumers, as software developers, how those um, bringing those uh, conductors and processes in-house is going to benefit us yeah. at the end of the day. It's so yeah. funny because I don't think about this like hardware stuff ever. Like <laughs> I probably should as someone who's a pretty heavy like computer user and stuff. But like whenever, you know, every year Apple comes out with a new laptop that like has a faster chip, I don't know what they're talking about. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> like I don't really pay attention to that. I know I've seen quite a few like developers on Twitter talk about like their experience with this laptop versus this one, or like sometimes people talk about like gaming PCs or whatever that like right. what the difference is with that, and it mm. means nothing to me. And I probably should. It's like hardware and cybersecurity are like the same for me. I should know more about them, but I just don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can have you don't have to go on on these side quests. You can have your specialty. Like once you get into video editing, yeah, or if you're doing certain kinds of coding, or if you're like yeah, trying to play a video game at a certain frame rate and be a competitor, you know, then it matters. It's like if if you have a car, you could care less if it has manual or automatic transmission. I don't even know how that works, but if you drag race your car, then you care. <laughs> yeah, you yeah, yeah, that that's pretty much how I am. And and I, Matt, you do vi a lot of video editing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I, to be honest. To to go back to your point, though, I think that's you're in a good position because I I feel like a lot of people, and I'm very much guilty of this too, Ben. I'm not I'm not sure if you can relate, but you get so into the technical specifics of a thing, you actually spend more time talking about performance optimization than you do actually creating anything in the mm. first place oh, yeah. and enjoying You're the like tools a gear that you have. Yeah, I just want to talk shop about this chip and that yeah. fan and this performance. Yeah, totally. It's just fun. But I think, Sierra, you made a good point, which is that it was kind of easy to ignore for a few years because I think a lot of the Intel gains felt kind of incremental. It was like, oh, we know every year it'll get 20%, 50%, 100% like faster, but it's not. it doesn't feel significant. Whereas I think what Matt said is very true. Once Apple brought it in-house and started doing it in an integrated way, where there were purpose-built chips that they knew were going to be in their hardware, suddenly you saw these really, you know, like meaningful gains that had an end-user experience that was pretty significant. Yeah, I'm sure. Like if I like went back to a laptop that doesn't have the pre-int that has the Intel chip, I guess. Am right. I saying? Yeah, I'm sure if I went back to a laptop that has the Intel chip, I would be like, "Whoa, I can feel the difference." But mm -hmm. I don't pay attention to that. No. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody else's problem. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah. So Matt, what laptop do you use? So I've got I've got two systems. I've got an old Intel MacBook Pro and then I have my 
large cumbersome gaming pc which i use for video editing mm. but i'm moving to canada shortly so i'm doing a complete rehaul mm. of my tech systems Ooh. which is going to be quite exciting yeah. so i'm excited i'm gonna move transition to an m1 macbook pro i think and then i'm not sure what i'm doing on the video editing side on the the gaming side and i also do some motion graphics stuff as well which requires unfortunately graphics cards right. which are in short supply at the yeah. moment so it's going to be an interesting experience, but I'm really looking forward to hopping onto an M1 system or a native Mac experience. Right. We should have an episode it's where just, you talk I've, about I've, hardware. Yeah, just ha- let's let's walk through your build out here. I want to know how, what you're going to do after you get there. <laughs> do 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 you actually want to? Oh, when I go to Canada, yeah, like you said? not not right now because we're we're running out of time on this episode. But I think it'd be fun to walk through the hardware you decide to take with you as you make a big move and why, you know, and what it's like to upgrade from one system to another. Yeah, that would be really cool to talk about. And maybe I'll actually, that'll force me to like learn some stuff about M1 (laughs) chips and Intel stuff and all that. Exactly. I am all about that. Yes, I can can talk gear for quite some time. (laughs) It's a favorite pastime. We're going to have segments. So maybe we'll have a gear segment at the end. Yeah. Um, speaking of which we're getting towards the end. I just want to give, um, a quick shout out, uh, to a piece of news here that I thought was interesting. It involves two folks who have been on the podcast. Um, there was a live stream with Anil Dash, the CEO of Glitch and Gabe Monroe, uh, from digital ocean who came on the podcast and it's an integration. So you can deploy your project straight to digital opens app platform with a single click from click from the glitch editor. And I think the most interesting thing that Gabe Monroe talked about when he came on the show was that not that many people are building for like the solo developer that once you start to build developer tools and cloud platforms and ML agents, you want to go after that sweet enterprise cash and get, you know, clients who are in the fortune 500. Um, but what, who's building for like the person who wants to do a fun side project or the next creator of Wordle or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so the digital ocean approach and their droplets are kind of cool. And glitch, I think is in a similar vein. It's like, yeah, it's almost like creative tools, you know, for like the indie developer, the solo folks, the side projects, which, um, you know, I really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I always say if you can make a good experience for the indie solo developers, mm-hmm. I think it you could at least, I don't know, should I say this? Because it might not be true. <laughs> well, podcast, you should definitely ahead, say it. Take okay. Risk. If you can make a good experience for solo developers, then you can absolutely bag the enterprise clients. Right. Because they ultimately had the software ultimately has to be used by solo developers anyway. So, and if they enjoy it, then you get your money. Developers demand certain tools, and eventually the bosses have to capitulate. (laughs) Right, exactly, exactly. You get it. I I think that also works from a a growth standpoint as well. If you make it good for individuals to use and they create use cases for that, it, it builds up hype like that because you get your advocates kind of coming from people who've used it for side projects and and say, hey, this worked really well for this. Let's bring it into work and we can use it there too. Right, right. That makes sense. All right, everybody. Um, thank you for listening. It is that time of the show. Awarded yesterday a lifeboat badge to Basile. Uh, they came on here, found a question with a score of negative three or less, gave it an answer that got to a score of 20 or more. And now the question has a score of three or more. So save from the dustbin of history can you make a computed go-to in C++? If you've ever wondered or the question interests you, we've got the answer in the show notes. I am Ben Popper, the director of content here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us with thoughts and suggestions, uh, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. really helps. I'm Sierra Ford. I am a developer advocate at ApolloGraphQL. If you want to reach me, 
in any way, shape, or form, the best place to do that is Twitter. My username there is at Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore. And I'm Matt Kinander. I'm a technical advocate here at Stack Overflow. If you're curious about what gear I'm using, hit me up on Twitter. <laughs> that's at Matt Kander, M-A-T-T-K-A-N-D-E-R. And uh, looking forward to seeing you all in the next next episode. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.